Welcome to Create Photography, this is Daniel. In today's episode, I will have a conversation with Benjamin Rasmussen. Ben is an American Faroese photographer who grew up in the Philippines and is now based in the American West. Ben is doing commercial and editorial work for multinational companies and major magazines and has recently released a book called The Good Citizen. Ben, welcome to Create Photography. I look very much forward to speaking with you today. Yeah, thank you for uh, for inviting me on. Awesome. So let's start a little bit with the beginning. <laughs> so you, you grew up in the Philippines, I read. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, my... So my, my mother is, is American um, from the kind of the Baltimore, Maryland area. And then my father is from this place called the Faroe Islands. Um, that's a protectorate of Denmark. And uh, they met in the 70s. When I was one year old, they, um, they moved to the Philippines um, as, as missionaries. And so my, my dad's a linguist and was kind of working specifically with um, this like family of languages in the very, very southern tip of the Philippines. So I, I, um, for the kind of first portion of my childhood was in on this tiny little island off of the, um, kind of the very Southwest, as far South and as far West as you can get in the Philippines, um, on this, you know, little Island with no roads, no electricity, kind of like no nothing. Um, and then I, I lived in the Philippines till the end of, um, high school at age 18. Um, but ended up kind of moving to, to Manila to go to school, um, as a, as a teenager. As a teenager, you moved to Manila. So from, so from the, the island that has no electricity to the <laughs> very big city, uh, yeah, I'm absolutely. sure that was, it, that and, was and, the and, transition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it was, it was boarding school as well, like a, a kind of, uh, um, like missionary boarding school. So it was a very, um, yeah, to, yeah. Going from, uh, you know, literally like, um, if you wanted to watch TV, you had to sort of convince your parents to, uh, to like fire up the generator Oh yeah, <laughs> um, to, to living in a place where, you know, it's, it is, it's this sort of really, really dense sort of, um, bustling metropolis, um, was, yeah. was, was quite a shift. Wow. And then, so then, um, so did you then come to the U S after that when you were 18 or? Um... Yeah. So I, I moved, um, kind of as, as part of, uh, part of the immigration thing in the, in the Philippines, like when, when I turned basically when I finished high school, um, and what turned 18, I could no longer stay on my parents' visa. And, um, and so, you know, having this kind of family that was split in terms of the, the Faroese side and the American side, it was this choice between, you know, do I go back to the Faroe Islands? Um, I'd, I'd, uh, spend a little bit of time there during summers, um, you know, working in a fish factory and stuff like that. And it was like, do I go that route or um, do I move to, to the U.S.? Um, ended up, you know, there was kind of some college recruiter who came to our, our high school in Manila. So I ended up going to this kind of very random s small university in, uh, in Northwest Arkansas. And it's kind of very, very rural town of Again, kind of doing that switch again from a city of a city of sixteen million to a town of about ten thousand. And then, what did you um, what did you study, if I may ask? So I, you know, I was I was one of those. Um, I ha I discovered photography in high school, um, but had never really 
you know, everyone I grew up with was essentially a missionary or an aid worker. So I didn't have, like, you know, I didn't grow up around examples of people who had different types of jobs. Um, and then in the Faroe Islands, it's, it's largely a uh, kind of fishing economy. And so, so I went to university really having no idea what I was going to do. Um, I, I was interested in music um, and played in kind of played in like punk bands and stuff. And, um, and so when I went to university, it's kind of ended up sort of uh, accidentally falling into journalism um, because, you know, I was like, I'm interested in music. And they're like, well, you could write about music. I was like, sure. Um, and then it was actually just through that, like we, we, uh, we had to take some photo classes as part of that major um, and in one of those photo classes, they, uh, um, they showed us, uh, James Noctway's, um, war photographer. And I was like, and, and, uh, you know, so that was obviously like super seductive as, as like a 19 year old, I was studying sort of journalism and writing and reporting, but there was something about the sort of photographic aspect that you had to sort of, you know, you had to be there, you had to connect with people, you had to, you had to observe that was, was really attractive. And that's, yeah. So then I ended up basically, um, there wasn't, it was a small university at that time. There wasn't even a, you couldn't study photography. There was probably about three classes, but I, uh, just kind of did it on my own and ended up, yeah, sort of just the, the, the journalism professor just kind of let me sort of do photography instead of writing. So now I understand, obviously you're a professional, you're, you're, you have multinational clients, you have, you know, editorial assignments and so forth. And I want to talk about that a little bit as well, but kind of, I'm still curious now how you got into that. <laughs> yeah. So, so from, yeah. So I, I finished, you know, I finished university and, um, with my partner, Abby, who I, I met in, we were both journalism majors and we decided to move back to the Faroe Islands for a year so that I could, I could kind of get to know my family there more and she could experience it. And while we were living there, I, I was just working as a, as a house painter but, you know, was like, okay, I think I want to give this photography thing a try and um, ended up building some relationships and, you know, just starting to do any work that I could find. And, and the Faroe Islands is very small. It's like less than 50,000 people. So, you know, I was doing everything from, you know, family portraits to uh, cookbooks to weddings to corporate, like annual report work. And then after that year, I went back and I lived in the, we lived in the Philippines for a year. And I, I, I spent a year kind of covering this long running conflict in the Southern part of the country. And then we ended up finally moving, moving back to the States. And as I was kind of slowly trying to, to, to work my kind of get my foot in the door here, I, I was able to kind of keep that work in the, in the Faroe Islands, um, which was super helpful. So, so basically every year, you know, I would, I was doing everything here, like, you know, going to New York and, and knocking on doors with a portfolio and, and trying to get assignments. And then for about two months every year through the first part of my 20s, I would go back to the Pharaohs and I would literally a, a typical trip for me would be I would go back, I would shoot a cookbook, I would photograph like a campaign for an insurance company, I would photograph like two or three weddings um, and then sprinkle in some other things. And then that would give me enough money to sort of like kind of get me through a portion of that year as then I was sort of slowly trying to get more and more um, editorial assignment work. Yeah. And so, so it sounds like you did a little bit of everything. May I ask, did you, I assume you speak the language too, right? 
Yeah, I, I get by. Faroese are also very, very multilingual. Um, okay. And okay. so, um, yeah, so I can definitely get by in Faroese. Um, but oftentimes, especially with, as, you know, de- depending on the kind of work, um, it would be a very, it would, a very sort of fluid space where you would kind of move from, from Faroese to English and, and back and forth and back and forth. So as you were building up, I guess, your, your client list here in the US, how, how has that evolved? Or I understand you, I've, I think it, you've, you're doing a lot of editorial work. Is that kind of your, your primary focus? Or is it kind of a, a split between commercial and editorial, I guess? Or? I've always done a little bit of both. I think for me, the, like my interest from the very beginning was kind of larger project-based work. Hmm. Um, but I also just, I needed to, to figure out kind of how to pay the bills. And, and, and honestly, I think I also really needed some space to figure out kind of what I was interested in saying visually and, and to kind of like find my own voice. Um, and so editorial was a really, really good space for that. And then kind of slowly over the course of, of a number of years, you know, it sort of starts with doing some you know, the occasional sort of like New York Times assignment. And, and I'm, I'm based in, in uh, Denver, in Colorado. So I'm very much yep. in like kind of the middle of the country. There's not a lot of other places. There's not a lot of other kind of cities around with photographers. And so that was actually a really, you know, it was a, it was a good place because as I started working with more people, you know, I was getting in sort of right as the industry was starting to tank and budgets were yeah. going down. Um, so I was always, a you know, like I could establish relationships with people because, you know, they would take a risk. Um, they would mm-hmm. take a risk because they're going to save money and not have to fly someone in. And then, you know, that builds up relationships where then you, you kind of end up. One of the interesting things in the editorial world is, is you kind of have an editor who will you know, think of you as one specific thing, even if that has nothing to do with what you do. So like there was a phase where I was covering a lot of politics for Time magazine and I'd never covered politics before. Like the first time I ever did anything related to politics was for, was for time. Uh, I mean, the first time I ever went to a, a football game was for ESPN, the magazine. And, and, and so you would have kind of different people who would place you in different spaces. And, and for me, that was, that was a really exciting thing for a while because you just, you kind of learn how your visual language translates into these, into these different areas. And then I've had an agent for a long time for, for advertising work, but that's always a little bit more kind of like sprinkled, you know, more, more kind of few and far between. And uh, yeah. And then always had kind of project work going on in the background, but oftentimes with kind of this, this, uh, this project I was doing over about the last eight or nine years, I was able to kind of dovetail that with editorial work where, um, you know, if there was, it was a very large kind of sweeping project. So I was able to break it up into really small pieces and then, you know, either pitch that to a specific publication or sometimes use, you know, use an, like an assignment that would say, take me to Pennsylvania and then just build in a couple of days to photograph something that was related to the project that I was trying to get access to on the back end, and using that as a way to kind of the, the actually using the editorial practice to, to be able to fund and give access to a much sort of larger project that I would I would never be able to afford on my own. Right. So it's kind of like you're 
in a way you're lucky that you you can kind of merge or combine the your personal project to some extent and kind of combine it with the with the editorial work right if, if i understand that correctly. yeah yeah absolutely yeah. and i and i yeah. think that you know there's there's this polish writer who who i love uh named richard kapuczynski who kind of from the for the kind of from like this probably 70s through the 90s um was like the main polish foreign correspondent, uh, especially under the sort of during communism. And he would, he was kind of famously always have two notebooks. Like, so he would be, he covered, he was especially worked kind of like throughout Africa during the post-colonial period when sort of the, the Europeans were leaving and, and countries were sort of figuring out their, their political structures and having a lot of revolutions and coups. And he would keep one notebook that he would, you know, interview people and, and gather facts and details and use that for his, you know, to telex back his kind of press reports um, for, for the Polish wire service. And then he had a second notebook that he would keep that he would write down, you know, impressions, sort of longer conversations, uh, scenes that he would observe, all of these things. And then he would use those notebooks down the road to write these long form nonfiction books about these very, very specific topics. And so for me, that, that two notebook um, method is, is very much kind of what, what I tried to do, which was, you know, shooting the stuff that I needed to shoot to make the client happy to sort of do that. But then at the same time, sort of keeping this, this other thing going on and, and having the two sort of exist simultaneously. For your work, for, I feel like I see like kind of a, co a coherent style that it seems quite natural and maybe sometimes a filmic look are you using film sometimes or is are you working with digital or both both yeah so I'll, for for a long time i was shooting a lot of a lot of large format and a lot of medium format you know when 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 kind of timing or budget wouldn't allow that then i would shoot uh i would shoot digital sometimes honestly for 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 a pro for like work that would be doing both i would actually be shooting digital so that I could send stuff to the client and I would be shooting film um, for myself. And, uh, or for a long time, I was also shooting a lot of Polaroid. Part of it, part of it is aesthetic, but also part of it was, I'll oftentimes be operating in spaces where there's a lot of photojournalists, like more sort of traditional um, sort of news coverage uh, photojournalists. And, you know, people who, people in those spaces oftentimes re react differently to cameras because they're just, you know, a camera can be so aggressive mm -hmm. um, and, and can sort of invade people's space. And so I found that especially, especially working in like large format or something where you're on a tripod, it's, it has to be more collaborative. You're actually, you know, the camera's not in front of your face. It just changed that relational dynamic. So, you know, it started off very much as this thing of, 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 you know, kind of, seeing people's work like like Alex Soth or, or some of these people in my in my early 20s and and really sort of wanting that kind of beautiful sense of romanticism and and you know warm light and all of those things mm -hmm. um, and then eventually it kind of shifted to actually being more interested in the way that that way of working shifted the relational dynamic of of mm -hmm. photographing a scene and photographing a person mm -hmm. and did it have to do because Obviously, with large format, right? You you almost have to slow down. <laughs> yeah. Um, is that is that part of it, or has that been part of it? Yeah, um, definitely. I, I mean, mm -hmm. and I think it's it's um, a, a, an, a, an example would be one of the first things for this for this new book, The Good Citizen. One of the first things I photographed for it was these protests 
in Ferguson, Missouri, over the kill over the police killing of a unarmed young black man. The way that most people are sort of covering that, you know, is is going out at night when sort of like things get really heated and things get things were getting violent and like the police and the protesters are clashing and you know, you need sort of, you need equipment and gear that works very, very quickly to, to function in those settings. Um, and, you know, so for me, what I would be doing uh, during those days, instead of going out and doing that, I would be, you know, walking around with a, with a large format camera and a couple of lights and an assistant and finding places to set up and bringing kind of like bringing protesters over to me, having long conversations about why they were there, about what impact this has had on their community, about sort of what their lived experience has been, and then photographing them and actually photographing them in, in Polaroid first so that they can see how they're being represented. And then also, you know, photographing them in film. For me, it showed me a really, really different way of operating that was not about the drama. And, and it was not about sort of this idea of, you know, the kind of like peak action, the, the, the very misused sort of decisive moment idea of news coverage, but it became much more of a um, sort of collaborative conversation where you're kind of giving people space to, to kind of reveal something of themselves. And, and also it, I think there's, a, there's an interesting thing when you kind of work in some of these media spaces where, you don't have to repeat the same information, you know, like, you know, that your viewers, you know, that the people seeing these images are also seeing all of that drama on TV or on, you know, in, in another publication. And so you have the freedom to do something different because you're just, your goal is not to be the entire conversation. Your, your goal is to sort of like add a different voice to it. Right, right. So like a different perspective. That, that's, that's super interesting. Yeah. So you're not just repeating that the, the the, as you said, right, the flashy drama, but but really looking at it a little bit differently, maybe from the people's from the people's perspective. Um, yeah, yeah, that's very cool. And so you mentioned um, the the project, the Good Citizen. I actually wanted to talk about this a little bit more. You already mentioned it a couple times. It's a long form project called the Good Citizen. It can be found on the on on your website. So I understand working now on a book, or the book has already been developed can you talk a little bit about the project and maybe the book <laughs> yeah for sure yeah so the the um you know the, the project came about because um i had been working a lot a lot of the sort of project-based work I, I had been doing sort of throughout the I'm, I'm at like the end of my 30s now so the project work i'd been doing kind of at the um in my late 20s and early 30s was largely related to like refugee issues displacement specifically like one body of work uh looking at the called by the olive trees that was looking at um, the Syrian population who had um, fled to uh, to Jordan um, due to the civil war. And, and then another body of work um, called Down Hernani Shores that was looking at one community that had been impacted and devastated by this like huge typhoon. And I was, I was showing this work to, uh, to an editor um, actually at National Geographic. And she posed this really interesting question, which was, you know, you're doing this work about like, these communities that are displaced, but when does someone go from being, you know, a refugee or a migrant um, or a displaced person to being a citizen? And, and where I ended up going with it as I was kind of like thinking through it was, you know, I, 
growing up in the Philippines, I never learned sort of American civics, American history. I didn't learn a lot of those aspects of uh, sort of, you know, of, of what that journey is like in the sense of, of, of the U.S., you know, as someone who's my, because I was, I was born in the U.S. and my mom is American, like that citizenship was just something that was always sort of given to me. And then when I moved back here as an adult, I'm a white guy with a, like a neutral accent. And so my, my identity was never questioned. And so I decided to start looking at that, at that topic and started researching it actually from like the legal perspective, like who, like what were the, how did the courts decide who was and was not American and that kind of was was the the first the first kind of step. And as I kind of continued to explore this over the course of about seven or eight years, kind of traveling all over, like you know, well over forty states, meeting with just dozens and dozens of people, I realized that actually what I was looking at was kind of how America came to be what it is today, and and creating sort of a a space to to look at the connection between the past and the present. And to kind of pose almost like open-ended questions about the sort of complexity of, of contemporary American society. And so during that process, then I, I ended up connecting with this academic, this legal scholar named Frank H. Wu. And then we ended up sort of collaborating. He's, he writes a lot about these issues. He's an expert in the sort of origins of, of kind of Asian American identity. Yeah. And so we ended up sort of chatting over a number of years and then... Um, as the book was coming together, I ended up sending him kind of edits that that we were working on, and um, he decided to kind of write this series of of five different essays um, that were looking at sort of specific topics within this. And then I was working with Stu Smith over at Goss, and we ended up actually like when when Frank sent us all of these essays, we ended up being really really interested in sort of some of the the territory that he was opening up. And so we actually redid the entire edit of the book to be this really different structure where typically an essay in a photo book is sort of like introducing the work or introducing the topic or, or whatever. And what we decided to do was instead to shift it where the, the essay and the images almost became like a Venn diagram of two circles that had a point of overlap. And so Frank's essay would sort of take one direction and then the images, the image sort of edit for that section would start at a point that had a piece of overlap with Frank's essay and then would take its own direction. And uh, yeah, and, and so that so that was so in, in part for me, it's, you know, it's it's an interest in looking at this topic, but it's also as somebody who's a big photo book collector and, and, and so much having lived in a city that doesn't really have you know, a big photo scene for most of my career, also being really, really interested in kind of that, the relationship between, you know, image and text, and how's how those things can function, and trying to sort of see how far we could kind of push what you're able to look at within a, a kind of photographic narrative. Right, because it, it definitely doesn't sound like your typical photo book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, when right. Yeah, and especially I think I think that you know there, there's a, a a movement within I think especially contemporary American photography that is more interested in the poetic space with a lot of the people who've come out of like the Yale MFA. There's a lot of you know kind of like Gregory Crutzen influenced people who are looking at 
essentially taking real, real, real spaces and turning them into fictionalized spaces. You know, there, there's these very specific kind mm -hmm. of like trends within American photography. Um, yeah, and my interest with this was kind of seeing how, yeah, how far can you kind of push those edges narratively? There is text associated with the image that's just like a very simple kind of several words about the image and then the location. And then a third kind of like category of text, which is all archival. So it's either it's either interviews that I have done or it's like original source text that I found, um, you know, even some of it like historic or some of it like um, some of it legal. Each each section of the book sort of uses text in a different way. But that was also kind of a different thing of 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 trying to avoid, you know, trying to avoid having this thing that sort of like ex like having just enough information that as a viewer, you can kind of follow along but having my voice my written voice within it be very very limited and kind of having this archival text is this thing that as a viewer you can start to kind of like piece together the 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 gaps between these images and this narrative mm -hmm. and start to sort of like um build that in for yourself hmm. sounds sounds very interesting is it would you say is it is it also educational in a sense? I mean, I'm sure you learned a lot as you were doing this project and this collaboration, but being that, f that Frank is an educator, um, I think like his essays take a tone that is not, you know, it's not didactic or preachy. It sort of raises questions that I think are, are very important. Well, there's one chapter, um, called archetype that, um, it begins with, this thing called the Sand Creek Massacre that happened like over a hundred years or over 150 years ago, um, where this peaceful group of Arapaho and Cheyenne were massacred by this like volunteer militia. And then the way that that narrative is explored is through this one boy who survived named Tom Whiteshirt. And I went and basically tracked down and photographed like several dozen of his like living descendants. So, so looking at the result of a massacre, by looking at one person who survived and how how many people kind of exist because of that one person. And then it ends with using this, this text, the sort of justification within kind of the American thought process during the American, during kind of the expansion West was this idea called manifest destiny, which was like that, like it is God's wish for America to expand and to take all of this land from its native inhabitants and to occupy it. Like that's what God wants for sort of like for, for white settler Americans. During one of his, his states of the union, Trump was talking about the expansion into space and he called, he called it America's manifest destiny of the stars. And so within the narrative of this section, it actually uses sort of a visual connection between these landscape images to move from this land this, these like landscapes in the Badlands in, in South Dakota to this landscape in Utah where scientists are training for a potential Mars mission. And then actually using, so then in, within the text, using that text from Trump and moving from that text from Trump to um, these basically mission diaries being kept by these scientists um, about the the way that they would see like land and territory on Mars being divided up amongst people who would come. And, and so just, so, so using that as this thing to sort of like project forward into like, is this mentality of sort of our right to land and our right 
to resources, you know, we're no longer sort of like necessarily stealing that from, you know, like indigenous Americans, but it is this sort of like mentality that is, that still exists, I think, within, within, um, uh, like an American self-image. Yeah. Going back to, to the good citizen project. And, and again, thanks so much for, for the explanation. It sounds super interesting to me, really fascinating. Where is the book at? Is it already available or is it, is it a preprint right now? Or Yeah, so, so we, uh, it was published by Ghost Books in the UK. It came out officially this spring. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah, so it, it, it's, it's a really fun, I mean, publishing a book in, you know, especially with a British publisher where we print, you know, it's printed in Italy in a in a kind of like post COVID or a post COVID world. It's, it was a very strange experience because the actual arrival dates for books, you know, was 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 very very delayed. Um, but yeah, so it it officially I think it officially kind of like finally arrived in the U.S. and hit kind of bookshelves. Um, oh, great! In in the late spring. Okay, yeah, and so we'll li we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Is it is it also via your website or? Yeah, so it's so it's. Um, uh, in, in the U S the, the easiest place to get it is, is kind of directly from me, um, in, in Europe and the UK, um, and, and other places it's, I think it's easiest kind of through, through Gost or through, you know, if you have a local kind of book, photo bookstore or anything like that. Okay. That very cool. Well, we'll, we'll link to that. And then I want to shift a little bit to some of your other projects. Um, there is actually another one that there, there are many on your, on your website that are cool, but one is called Home. And I, I'm, I'm kind of curious about that one because obviously with your upbringing and, you know, we, we talked about that at the very beginning, which, which is super interesting. You know, you, you were in the small island, the big cities and other places and the, the Faroe Islands. Would you mind talking a little bit about, about that project? And Yeah, Home was, was actually kind of like the first body of work that I did. And it came, it came from a space of, I'd, I'd, lived, I'd been living in the Faroes. I tried to make work there and I couldn't quite figure out how to do it. I'd been living back in the Philippines. I'd been doing conflict work and it and just like wasn't, I, I hadn't quite, I hadn't found a voice and I hadn't quite figured out what I was trying to do with the work. And, and so kind of, I ended up basically kind of realizing that I was trying to talk about other people and I had no idea what that experience was like, kind of meaning like if I was going to try and tell stories of other people and other places, I needed to first tell my own. So that was kind of what I did. I, I you know, growing up, growing up how I did with, with an American mother, a Faroese father living in the Philippines, I was always this kind of in, you know, I was always in between these worlds. I was a translator of, these spaces that were so deeply exotic to the other groups, you know, like the Pharaohs, for example, is, is like, is so exotic to Americans. Um, and definitely like sort of where I grew up in the Philippines is, you know, very, very exotic to, to, to Faroese and Americans, but also like living, like growing up where I did in the Philippines, like the, the kind of the, the ex massive expanse of, of, of America, of the U S and, and the, the sort of decadence of it was, was completely unimaginable. Um, so I'd always existed in this kind of translator role between these three different worlds. And, and that was, I decided to just to basically do a body of work where I was trying to sort of find the connection between them and photograph in, in the Faroe Islands, in Balabac, the, the island I grew up on in the Philippines, 
And then in this little town called Chugwater in Wyoming, which is where my my wife's family is from, or where where she grew up, and her family has has ranched there for um, several generations. And and just to try and to try and sort of on on the one hand, sort of uh, try and understand what the similarities and kind of what the overlap of those spaces were, but then also doing it sort of as that act of translation, as that act of of you know showing for example showing showing the Faroe Islands in a in a way that was so similar to how I was showing Wyoming that people in Wyoming could see it and understand that it was sort of closer to their own experience and yeah so that was that was something I I kind of I worked on kind of in, in my like early to mid 20s um and that really I I learned a lot from that process because I I learned because not only was I sort of photographing these places that I was deeply connected to, but then sort of family and friends who I knew very, very well were seeing that work and responding to the way that they were being represented. And it was a big shift for me because before then I had been doing, you know, much more sort of like black and white reportage, like sort of harsher images and, um, and I like, sort of doing that photographing something that you sort of have such a, a close connection to it, it it's I think where kind of that that style that you mentioned earlier of kind of much more like not over overly romantic um right right not over processed or anything <laughs> yeah yeah uh because because you know it was work that I like that that the 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 people who were in it were the people that I I knew very well. You know, it wasn't work that I could sort of make anonymously. And then I sort of t- then then kind of took that approach forward into uh, into into other bodies of work. Mm-hmm. And how you know, just curious. So so this project or other projects, how do you go about just the editing of the images? Since we talked about processing, I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, because you you obviously use we, we talked about film and digital and so forth and um, yeah just curious about that it's it's definitely kind of changed over the years but for me like a like a, a perfectly exposed like large format sheet of like Kodak Portra is kind of what I want everything to look like you know what I mean like not not so so like I don't. Um, and I've always scanned my own, like I was, I always scanned my own film. I always like, so I was, I was very involved in kind of like, um, the process of the whole thing. I've always printed, I've always printed for myself. There's always been kind of a like middle road that I've tried to, to hit. And, you know, with, with shorter projects, it's, it's, it's not that hard trying to keep everything sort of like visually on the same page. And then for longer projects, it gets a lot more complex because, you know, like, like you're, you're doing, you're changing as a, as a person and as a photographer throughout the process. It's definitely a bit trickier, but you know, one of the things that I'll do quite often if I'm trying to edit a project is I'll, I I usually always, in terms of structural editing, I'm always using physical prints, the kind of first phase. And I I work with a lot of photographers on, on kind of editing their projects or curating or different things. The, my kind of first starting rule is always just really bad four by six prints from a drugstore because it removes that kind of preciousness. You know, like if your relationship with a picture is, if what you feel like makes a picture important is like purely the, the tonal range, I think oftentimes like that's probably not going to do a lot for the structure of a project. Right. And, uh, and so I think doing like really, really crappy prints can be that helpful first step. 
And then as you develop a structure, then doing sort of like, you know, nicer, like eight by 10 prints and being able to pin all of them up and you sort of are seeing them together and you start to see like, you know, if all of a sudden you're getting sort of carried away and, and the highlights are getting super, super, like super warm and orange, when you see all of them on a board together, you like those start to really stand out. And, and, and it's, to me, it's, it's not, it's not so much that like the only point of a photograph is like what it represents and what's inside of there, but it's, it's, you know, in, in, in literature, they have a thing called purple writing, um, which is like, you know, just sort of overly descriptive flowery prose that don't really say anything. And I think that that's, uh, it's, it's a trap that photography can fall into a lot. And so for me, a lot of those things are just trying to avoid that tendency that I have in myself for, you know, the photographic version of, of purple writing. Mm -hmm. And I assume, right, with the editing, it's, it's also the, well, obviously the sequence and all that stuff plays into that as well. Yeah. And, and for me, text is also a really interesting aspect, you know, so I'll, I'll oftentimes, if I'm doing something that uses text as well as uh, images, I'll actually edit, like I tend to work a lot with found text, like either interviewing people and pulling things from that or text that I, I did, I did this project called um, kind of over COVID called Cold War Cowboy looks at this man named Dean Reed, who is this like American who like moved to LA, tried to make it as like a kind of in the fifties, tried to make it as like an actor and, uh, and a singer and, you know, got, got some big record deal and some big acting contract, but never quite hit it off with American audiences and then was touring in South America ends up like sort of becoming super famous in Chile and, and, and Nicaragua and these different places through that becomes politically active kind of leftist movements as you know, I us is overthrowing Allende and stuff like that in Chile ends up becoming essentially the most famous American in the Eastern Bloc countries, makes all of these things called Red Westerns, which are like American style Western films, but that are filmed in the Eastern Bloc countries. And, and typically the, you know, the, the cowboy is all of a sudden is the bad guy. Um, and it's kind of this like this shift of the kind of moral framework of, of the Western as this sort of American icon. And, and so I was really interested in looking at and I was working within his archive and, and, and these different things. And, and so within that, like I was using the text I was using was all I decided to use like song lyrics of his. I, I tracked I found this website that had every article ever written by him. And so any like I translated everything to English and sort of had all of these would literally just cut out pieces of text. And so I would have the, you know, the prints, the little like four by six prints of everything that I had, I had photographed or I'd re-photographed and then all of these cut out texts. And then for me, it's a very physical, you know, folding over a bunch of eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper and starting to sort of like tape stuff in and see how it flows and see how it moves. Mm-hmm. Very cool. That almost sounds like a book project too, but I don't know if, if that's what you're thinking. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did just, I did a, um, basically a newspaper with it, um, kind of new, newsprint. I did a, um, worked with a designer friend and we actually ended up doing something that was like in reference to the, like the financial times and the, the economic press that's always printed on that kind of like, you know, salmon pink, like newspaper. And so we, we produced kind of a newspaper about Dean Reed in that way. 
Well, that's cool. Before we wrap up, just a couple more questions. So, so one is a little bit, I, I typically don't ask many technical questions. I'm sometimes interested about the film and digital and so forth. But do you have like a, a favorite focal length? I know you're obviously using a, a range of different formats and so forth. But is there like something you're gravitating towards in your, in your work? Yeah, I mean, I, because they're different formats, it kind of, you know, it does bounce around, but it, it tends to be something that's about like a, a 50 millimeter equivalent in, in 35. And I think it just, it adds like a level of formality, but it also, it doesn't remove enough from the scene that you can sort of, you know, purely isolate. Um, so for me, that, that, that's something that I always sort of come back to. Like, even when I'm, even when I'm shooting digitally, I, I tend to be, especially these days, kind of using cameras with, with, um, with movements as much as possible, sort of like, to me, like the, the sort of formality, I, I find really interesting. I, I feel like there's something that as a viewer, there's, I'm, I'm always really drawn to sort of like stillness and formality in an image. And it kind of comes from, uh, there's, there's this, uh, the singer Tom Waits has this really good line where he says, I love beautiful melodies telling me horrible things. <laughs> and, uh, and so for me, that's something that I'm really interested in is like, a lot of the the topics that I, I find myself drawn to are, are really sort of complex and difficult. And so, you know, even something as simple as using like a focal length like that, or, or, you know, having frames that are like sort of perfectly even and perfectly like level, it adds this sort of, it, it kind of, it allows you to sort of go into a scene that's maybe very chaotic, um, create sort of a sense of sort of stillness within that space. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and my I guess my last question is where can people best find you online? <laughs> um, so I'm on I'm on uh, Instagram at Benjamin Rass, and then uh, and that kind of like links to everything else. I don't know the the, the online space I think is so interesting because it's like I think you know earlier in my career like those things were you know everything that you did was you know for some publication or for some client or for a gallery show or for these different things. And I think part of what's what's so interesting about an online space is that I've been trying to explore more is it can also be sort of like a, a final way of showing work. It can, it can sort of be like one, one sort of like permanent expression of it as opposed to just, you know, sort of referencing, you know, referencing the book or referencing the show or, or whatever. I, I play with a little bit of that on Instagram and then also uh, on, on my website as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, I, I explored especially your websites. I, I, I thought it was really cool. I, I liked I liked I spent quite a bit of time there. Um, so yeah, so we'll link to that as well. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for bringing me on.